There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. And stand with me. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelations, alternating the Old and New Testament. We are in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 20. go down to verse 9. But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is no good toward David, and I do not send to you to tell you, may the Lord do so much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. You shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. Know not when the Lord has been cut off from every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again calls David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone of Ezel. Father, we thank you for just another time we can gather together, Lord, and learn from your word. Pray your Holy Spirit would take your word and let it penetrate our hearts and let it bring about fruit in our lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. One of the most majestic of all creatures is the tiger. And for many years, these amazing creatures have puzzled researchers. The intriguing thing is, it seems that when the tigers hunt, they have a remarkable capacity for causing their prey to become paralyzed with fear. As the tiger charges towards its hapless prey, it lets out a spine-tingling roar. Now, you'd think this would be enough to cause the prey to run and turn and run for its life. But instead, it often freezes and soon becomes tiger food. At the turn of the century, scientists at communication research in North Carolina discovered why you're likely to freeze on the spot rather than run when the tiger charges. They discovered that when a tiger roars, it lets out a sound that is audible. Those are the ones that sound so terrifying. But it also lets out a sound so low that the frequency, you can not hear it, but you can feel it. And so as the tiger emerges from the underbridge, flashing its colors, The sound of its roar and the impact of the unheard but felt sound waves combine to provide an all-out assault 
on your senses. The effect is that you are momentarily paralyzed. So even though there may have been time to avoid the tiger, you are tricked into standing still long enough for the tiger to leap upon you. Our fears often operate the exact same way. They paralyze us into inactivity even when the real threat is not even immediately upon us. So let me ask you this morning, what do you fear? The situation of David and Jonathan is profoundly like our own circumstances. There is much to fear in our present world. There are real dangers and real enemies. Jonathan took the future kingdom seriously, more seriously, we might say, than the superficial aspects of the present, real and terrible though they were. Jonathan, in a way, feared the coming king and made his peace with him as he had opportunity in the present. Now, this was a good fear. He loved the coming king. He saw his goodness. But he was also determined not to be found the king's enemy. Let's take a look here in 1 Samuel, see if we can't come up with some things to help us the next time that our world rocks and our knees shake. Look at verse 10, please. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. So they meet in this field, and Jonathan once again affirms his allegiance to the future king, as is evidenced in verse 13. Now, the Hebrew is more ambiguous than our English translation. It could be taken not as a petition, but a prediction, as in, the Lord will be with you, as he has been with my father. Now, understood this way, Jonathan's words express a confidence implicit, even in the petition, that David is going to be the next king. We probably can't even imagine how much that must have encouraged David. You see, at this point, Jonathan is believing things about David that David himself cannot believe. David is primarily concerned with Saul killing him. From the text, it would seem like the throne is the furthest thing from David's mind. And we all need friends like Jonathan, don't we? We all need someone who will come alongside us and remind us that we are still on track. And the plans and the purposes of God for our lives are still going to happen. Because like David, it is very easy to forget those things in the midst of trials and tribulations. Sometimes the Lord will send someone on our, to us on our behalf. Timothy is a New Testament version of Jonathan. This is 1 Thessalonians 3. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution, and as you know, it happened. We all need that Timothy in our life 
from time to time when the promises of God seem distant. But not only that, we also need to be a Timothy when we see someone whose head is hung low. It's been said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. But encourage me and I will never forget you. We all need encouragement. Why? Because this is a hard and insane world that we live in, as was evidenced this week by another mass shooting. I think such things are just the beginning of birth pains. Because when you tell people they're just highly evolved animals, you shouldn't be surprised when they behave like animals. In the words of Tennyson, red in tooth and claw. But there's another trait in Jonathan that I find astonishing. Jonathan is content to step away from the throne and allow David to have it. A famous conductor once identified the greatest quality of a concert violinist as the ability to play first violin. And that's probably true. But the willingness to play second violin may say much more about a person. Such willingness to play a second violin was at the heart of Jonathan. Would you help a friend get promoted, even if it meant that you yourself might not be selected for that promotion? Now, the idea of being content is pretty much a lost attribute in today's world, or at least in the societies that are prosperous. Of course, we live in a world that thrives on our discontentment. Did you know that the average American views more than 3,000 ads per day? Not just on billboards and television, but now ads on gas pumps and washroom stalls and checkouts and grocery lines. They all clutter our minds with targeted messages telling us what we want. Making us discontent is a billion-dollar industry, and I'm as vulnerable as anyone. There is a reason why I upgrade my phone every two years. Why? Because the phone I currently possess stinks. But here's the thing. When I got it 12 months ago, I was thrilled with that phone. But in no time, they came out with a better model that shoots out lasers and stuff, and my phone doesn't. So I become discontented with something I loved just a short while before. Now, this discontentment assault begins at a very early age. Listen to this article. McDonald's marketers are experts in capturing young minds. Researchers at the Stanford University School of Medicine conducted a study with children ages 3 to 5. They presented the kids with two sets of chicken McNuggets. Now, one was wrapped in McDonald's packaging and the other in plain packaging. And after the children ate, the researchers asked them, which group of the nuggets tasted better? Now, keep in mind, the nuggets were exactly the same, only the packaging was different. The study found that the overwhelming majority of children preferred the taste of the nuggets in McDonald's brand packaging over the unbranded nuggets, despite the fact that the food was exactly the same. Now, the test was repeated with food items not normally associated with the McDonald's menu. When food items like carrots and apple juice were wrapped in McDonald's packaging, the taste buds of the three-year-olds were already imagining a superior taste. 
So we see that even toddlers are taught to be content only by what society tells them. Now, this happens in other areas of life as well. I even read an amazing article about Olympic athletes. Now, the fantasy and gold of every Olympian is to stand on that stage and have that gold medal hung around their neck. Now, of course, we know that all medals are not created equal. USA Today cited a report that surveyed the happiness and contentment level of the gold, silver, and the bronze medal winners. Not surprising, the happiest athletes were the gold medalists. The next result, however, may surprise you. You may have thought that the silver medalists were next on the happiness scale. They weren't. The bronze medalists were happier and more thankful than the silver medalists. Now, why would that be? Well, perhaps the silver medalist thinks, I came so close to winning gold, but I just fell short. Whereas the bronze medalist thinks, I almost didn't get a medal. I'm just happy to be on the podium. One reflects on what they have. The other reflects on what they don't have. Therefore, the third-place athlete is happier than the second-place athlete. Psychologists describe this as counterfactual thinking. It's the I could have or I should have state of mind. And as Christians, we sometimes suffer from the silver medal syndrome. Though we have the highest standard of living in recorded history, we never seem to have quite enough. You may be thinking, if you have seen my bank account, you wouldn't have said that. But consider this. If we always compare ourselves with those in the financial brackets in front of us, we will never be content. We will always look above us and think that we never have enough. And our culture works hard to keep us looking up. But when we take a moment to realize the financial brackets of those below us, we can gain immediate perspective. Here's what I mean. The United States has just 5% of the world's population, but we consume 30% of the world's resources. If the whole world consumed resources at the rate of the United States, we would need up to five planets to accommodate everything. Still not convinced? If you have a car, no matter what kind, you're among only 8% in the entire world. That means that the rest of the 92% would be envious of your fortune. It's been estimated that 1.1 billion people don't have access to clean drinking water. They would probably look at us this morning and say, we can't even imagine not having to walk two miles for water, but simply turning on a faucet only a few feet away. Did you know that severe hunger afflicts 862 million people each year? Some experts say to completely solve global hunger, which costs about $30 billion a year. But are you ready for this? Americans spend more than that each year on pizza alone. Suffice it to say that for the majority of this planet, we are the ones living the dream. We all need contented hearts like Jonathan. Jonathan says, David, I'm in the way to your ascendancy to the throne, and so I will willingly step aside and allow you to bow down, or I'll step aside and bow down to you as the king. It reminds me of another man who stepped off the throne of his life to allow Christ to ascend to the throne of his heart. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, 
But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. I want to get to that point in my life. I want to come to the point that where anything that dims my view of Christ becomes filthy in my sight. I'll take the kingdom of God over McDonald's any day. Verse 14. You should not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die, but you should not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Jonathan then makes David promise that he will always be kind to the descendants of Jonathan. Jonathan used the same Hebrew word that David had used back in verse 8, because in the future it would be Jonathan who needed kindness and mercy, and David would be the one with the power to help. Jonathan understood the reversal that would soon take place. And so he looked to David for mercy, should he still be alive when David became the king. Now, if you care to glance a long way ahead to 2 Samuel, you'll see that David kept his oath that he swore that day to Jonathan. Now, verse 16 speaks of them making a covenant. Now, covenants in Scripture are a very serious thing between two parties. To make a covenant, or to literally cut covenant, meant the two parties would divide an animal, stand in the middle of the carcass, and state their commitment to each other. In doing this, they were saying, I'm deadly serious about this. If I don't follow through on my end of the bargain, let me become like this animal. Now, we're given a penetrating look into covenants in Genesis chapter 15. Here's the background. The Lord is going to make Abram a promise. This is Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? Abram wonders how God can possibly fulfill this promise under his present circumstances. God's reply, he makes a covenant with Abram. This is Genesis 15:9. So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. In answer to Abram's request for proof that God would give him an inheritance, God instructs Abram to draw up the equivalent of a modern-day contract. But why would the Bible record that the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses? Well, throughout Scripture, birds are almost always symbolized by evil. The picture here, I think, is that while Abram waited for God to meet him, he did his best to keep evil at bay, shooing away the birds of doubt and unbelief. The result of that? Exhausted by his own efforts, Abram fell asleep. This is verse 17. 
It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So when Abraham awoke, he saw that the meat on either side of him had been barbecued. God had been there meeting Abram not halfway as the custom was, but walking the entire length alone. This is still the way of God. Oh, we try to chase away the birds of evil which threaten our families and our country. We hold rallies and we sign pledges. We make vows. We make promises. But because in our flesh dwells no good thing, like Abram, we eventually become exhausted in trying. Well, times don't change. People with sincere hearts say, we will keep our promises. Well, the problem with signing contracts, making vows, and keeping promises is they fail to factor in a huge component, that being the flesh. Romans 7.15 nails this. It reads, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present with me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? God's aware of this, my friends. That's why he says, I will wait until you are as tired as Abram was, then I'll come through on my own. I don't want you to sign a contract or make a promise. I know what you're made of. I know your frailty. So I'm not going to meet you halfway. I'm going to do the entire thing myself. Now, when I wrote that, my mind went to this passage in Isaiah that captures this idea perfectly. This is speaking of the Lord, Isaiah 59:16, And he saw that there was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. There is only one true promise keeper. Only one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus came on the scene and did what we were unable to do. He kept the covenant, the promises, and the commandments. All of the promises of God are in him and kept by him. They're fulfilled through him and point to him. What then is our part? Well, we'll be partaking of it this morning. Our part is not to stand in the midst of an animal cut in two, but to come to a table and to hold in our hands a body that was sacrificed for us and to remember him. It's another covenant. The Bible says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which I do for you. Do this in remembrance for me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, 
This cup is the cup of the what? It's the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's the most important covenant that any of us in here will ever make. And if you haven't made that covenant, I plead with you to do that today. Verse 17. Now, Jonathan again calls David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is a new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. I want to insert a little note right here. David knows that Saul will miss him if he is not there. Because David is always punctual and he's always punctilious about biblical obedience. Punctilious. Isn't that a great word? I learned it this week and wanted to use it before I died. (laughs) David knows that if I'm not there, everybody will stop and say, where's David? Why? Because his personal life has order to it. You can set your watch by the predictability of David's moral and religious conduct. All of us should be like that. We should all have structure to our private lives. And we can picture the table setting. The king's seat was by the wall as usual, perhaps providing him with some protection. Opposite him was Jonathan. On one side of Saul was Abner, the army commander. But there was an empty seat with David's name on it. Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. I paused to ponder a bit about being missed because your seat will be empty in regards to church attendance. Have you ever thought about what your empty chair says to others? For your empty chair does speak for you. Though its message is unpleasant, it is a message that others can hear. Listen to how one commentator states it. To the pastor it says, your message is not really worthwhile. To the treasurer it shouts, look out for a deficit. To the stranger who is looking for a church home it suggests, you'd better keep looking or wait a while before you join. To the members who are present it says, why don't you miss next Sunday too? Everybody else does. He finished by saying, the empty chair can dampen the spirit in the service. It can kill your church's inspiration and smother its hope. It will dull the sharpness of zeal and deaden expectation. What is your chair saying? Did you know that if everyone came here at once to Calvary Chapel, we would have over a hundred people every Sunday? Yet we average between 50 and 60 every Sunday. That means that on average, on any given Sunday, almost half the church is at home. I don't know what to think about that. Now, look, I know that there are times when work, sickness, and vacation causes all of us to miss from time to time. But as for a Christian, I do think we should be here all the other times when at all possible. As I've told people in the past, the issue isn't you missing church. The real issue is why are you missing church? And after doing this for a pretty long time now, I've discovered there are only two basic reasons. One is it's simply not important to us because we always make time for what is important in our lives. That's why we hardly ever miss a meal. Or we don't, become, we don't come because we are convicted when we do come. Well, either way, we need to be here. The ironic and the sad thing is 
some of the people who probably needed to hear that this morning aren't here. One quick comment on the last few verses, and you can go to Burger King. Verse 19, or wherever you would like to go. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send the lad saying, go and find the arrows. If I expressly say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, Lord, the, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. That word ezel means the rock that shows the way. Therefore, David is asked to stay beside the rock that shows the way. And like David this morning, you might be at a crossroads where you won't figure out where you're supposed to go next. I have great news for you this morning. God will direct you. All you have to do is stay close to the rock that will show you the way. That is, all you have to do is stay in touch with Jesus day by day by day. Even if your devotional life isn't all that it should be. Even if there are struggles that you wrestle with continually. And even if you feel like you've missed the boat previously, God is faithful. God blesses us in spite of ourselves if we simply station ourselves by the rock that shows us the way. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning, regardless of where we are with God. Lord, please show us the way. And I'm sorry, Lisa. Oh, she's already left. Never mind. I'm not sorry. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the rock that shows us the way. Not only that, Lord, you are the solid rock that we can build our lives on. Because we know, Lord, that this world is shifting and sinking sand, Lord. Only you are worthy to build a human life on. Be that to us today, Lord. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.